The winner is Lou Louis Gossett, Gossett Jr. Hello and welcome to this episode of Categorically Oscars. I'm Carl. And I'm Chris. And our guest today uh, is a frequent podcaster and uh, importantly for us has been a big supporter of this podcast from the very beginning, uh, which we really appreciate and we're delighted to have them on the show. I am of course talking about Owen Daly. Owen, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Um, Yeah, no, I, I remember... Um, happening upon your podcast and just being interested in how the topic of conversation changed every time so I've been listening ever since oh well thank you we appreciate it um and you've given us a category this week um which is best supporting actor of 1982 why did you choose this category and when did your love affair with the Oscars begin um, so I chose the category because I feel like when I talk about what I love about film, I don't spend as much time talking about the male actors in film. And in wanting to talk about this category, I had to think, what is my favourite lineup? And 1982 just happens to be that great year for me. And then I guess what began my appreciation of film and things like that, I can't really trace it back to one moment. I mean, I think being young and watching Spirited Away a lot really kind of made me really love a lot about film. And then in terms of following the Oscar race, it was around 2010 that I think I can remember following it and trying to see all of the nominated movies. And unusually for supporting actor uh, in 1982, there's only one villain amongst these because usually it's like villains are plenty, but only one. Um, and the nominees this year were uh, Charles Durning in The Best Little Whorehouse in Texas, John Lithgow in The World According to Garp, James Mason in The Verdict, Robert Preston in Victor Victoria, and the winner, Lewis Gossett Jr. in An Officer and a Gentleman. So first, we're going to talk about Charles Durning eventually, once the film eventually gets to him, um, in The Best Little Whorehouse in Texas. Um, and this was based on a, a real story about a house of ill repute, uh, which was a chicken ranch. And uh, this journalist, Larry King, wrote this article. Um, he hung outside the ranch for a couple of days and counted 484 men went in there in those two days. Um so they were a busy lot. Um, and then it became a Broadway musical. Um, and it was very popular with audiences. Uh, can we understand why? Well, I mean, it certainly is very raucous and very joyful um, and very sex positive. And I think that uh, audiences appreciated that. Um, and it has a lot of catchy numbers and just kind of very fun atmosphere throughout the whole thing. 
So it's not surprising to me that uh, audiences responded and made it a hit. Yeah, I, I mean, I have to agree. Um, I actually <laughs> once was in a production of this musical in my local uh, dramatic society. Um, <laughs> so I'm I'm fairly familiar with the original show. And obviously there's a lot of differences made for the film and who they mostly decide to focus on. Um, yeah, I mean, it's it's a really enjoyable score, as you were saying, and there's a lot of just memorable numbers to watch that I can understand why people enjoyed a lot. What was your role then? <laughs> <laughs> I, w- I was just one of the ensemble members. I did, I did take part in uh, their version of the Aggie uh, song so I did take part in a pro- in a production of that so that was an interesting experience <laughs> I bet <laughs> um, yeah I, I mean I appreciate how hell for leather the film was you know it, it never really loses its energy for a second um, never kind of sags even when Dolly and Bert have the big argument there's never a moment where the film feels like it's bogged down. It, it just carries on going. It's, you know, the very definition of a rollicking good time. Um, and I kind of went along with it, despite some, you know, misgivings and a script that doesn't always make sense. Um, certainly in terms of what's legal and what isn't and power structures, etc. Um but, I mean, this is a musical comedy, so it shouldn't really have to, to go through that level of scrutiny. And its heart is in the right place. And I did like that it was sex positive, too. I agree with Chris. Yeah, I just I just uh, very much like Dolly Parton. I mean, she obviously was in a couple of very well-known films throughout her film career. But I feel like this one is very much under-discussed and shouldn't be because... It's pro- it, like it's her first proper leading role, and I think she really plays it very well and makes you understand why she was why she's such a popular uh, persona even to this day. Yeah, yeah, and also I think her chemistry with Burt Reynolds is just dynamite. Like there were quite strong rumors and news reports um, that they were having an affair in real life. Um, and you can kind of understand why somebody might think that, um, judging by the film, just because the chemistry is so off the scale and they seem completely at ease in each other's company. Um, that they're a, they're a very easy pairing to root for. Um, but I did think, like, when they have the conversation about um, Bert's boxer shorts, Earl's boxer shorts, and they kind of, like suggesting that he doesn't look sexy because he's wearing these boxer shorts. And I'm thinking, come on, this is Burt Reynolds here. I mean, (laughs) the guy was like a heartthrob of the 70s and 80s. He's got a banging body in this. He could be wearing a tea towel and he'd still look sexy. Mm -hmm. And this this was only a few years after his uh, centerfold, right? So, yeah, like, didn't really matter what he was wearing. (laughs) Yeah, I mean... Burt Reynolds is one of those kind of 
names in film where you know of him and maybe while you've seen some of his work you don't necessarily appreciate him for his great skill but I think he's just he's just as charismatic in this as Parton is and I think as you said the chemistry between the two of them is just so alive and electric that it really carries you through the film and makes you interested in continuing to watch every scene. Do you think that they maybe could have made at least one of the actual prostitutes a character of, of you know, a featured character in this? It did. I did sort of wonder, could it have maybe personalised them a little bit more? I mean, in the in the original play, um, there's a, a, like it starts with one of the prostitutes coming to the whorehouse, so it's not so it's more of an ensemble piece on the stage. So I think had they wanted to include that storyline that's very much prevalent in the play, it could have given another interesting part to this story. So I think yeah, I I would have liked to see whether did come from the play or even just a new character then spread out the people you were to care about because you do care about the characters that they focus on so i think adding another focal point wouldn't have been a bad thing yeah i was actually surprised that there was no kind of b story involving one of the one or more of the prostitutes in the house it seemed kind of a standard thing for this kind of movie this kind of musical to have that kind of, um, you know, second supporting plot line running through it. But I guess, you know, as you say, they did make a lot of changes, uh, mainly to make it a Reynolds part and vehicle. So I guess they decided to, you know, exclusively focus on that. Yeah, because the film's kind of asking us to believe in this, you know, the brothel as the, an American institution almost, you know, but uh, it doesn't always justify Mona's faith in what she's doing I think like I think having a character uh the original character I didn't actually know about that that originally there there was a featured prostitute um but I think having a character that was part of that would anchor this cozy impression that they're trying to create with the whole house um mm-hmm. but I did like that Mona herself was um, independent and free thinking because we, we are going to be talking about some female characters later that are portrayed quite terribly um, so there, it was in general a positive female representation in this I think mm-hmm. so what about Charles Durning we'll see if our discussion of him is longer than his role <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I I really love this role, even for how small it is. Um, it's just, I mean, Charles Durning is one of those character actors where when you see him in things, you like know him instantly because he is one of those kind of character actor, character actor recognizable faces. And usually he's playing very intimidating characters um, or fatherly figures. But in this, he just gets to have fun. And in his musical number, you can just feel how much fun he's having in this role oozing through every, I guess, five minute, every minute of the five minutes he's on screen. I just, it's one of those performances that 
while we have to wait so long for it, it's very much worth the wait, I think. Yeah, I mean, I think I enjoyed a lot of the numbers. Um, I was kind of enjoying them without loving them. But when it got to his, um, I think you're right, Owen. I think it's completely worth the wait. I know this is only seven minutes of screen time, but he's such fun. Um, And the amount of sass that is coming out of this man is just off the scale. I think he's just, I think he's fantastic. Um, and I especially love the way that he, he shakes his hands when he sings ooh. <laughs> that was just really funny. <laughs> um, just iconic. Iconic, I think. Uh, talk about making the most of what you have. Yeah, I, I agree. I think his number is the best one in the film. If, I, if I'm if i going to be completely honest, I don't remember much of the musical numbers from this um except for his um i they just didn't do it for me for the most part his number is great and yeah his glee his joy is is uh just really fun to watch and i i think that he does a great job and i love charles durning i don't know if i'd give him an oscar nomination for it because it just I don't know. It just didn't seem to be substantial enough for that, but it doesn't deny that it's a great seven minutes and the highlight of the film. Does anyone know if the, if this is um, if this is the kind of role that won a Tony, or is it you know was it already a celebrated role, or is it literally just what he brought to it stood out in, in terms of getting the nomination? I mean, I'm not. I didn't do the research on it, but I just. I mean, looking at what films he was starring in at the time, the fact that he was also had a big, I mean, a larger role in Tootsie in the same year. I think Durning was just at that point where he was going to be recognized for something. And I think this being such a different turn for him, maybe was reason enough why for him to be chosen as the kind of standout of the film. He also, he has just, he has a different energy than the kind of main characters you're following where he has just a grin the entire time. And as you say, that kind of constant shrugging of his shoulders and shimmying as he um, lets out the ooh into his sidestep is just, it's just really fun to watch. And I think it's a performance like this, even with such little screen time that makes me always want this category to be full of performances like this because it can get bothersome for me seeing people who have like seven on like an hour of screen time in an hour and a half film get into this category when it's roles like Durnings which should be recognized even if they feel small I think he just does really good work here and while he while I might not nominate him, I'm happy the nomination at least happened. Yeah, um, I agree. Um, and it, like, even like you think the song's over and Earl comes in and they have like a scene together. And then on the way out, he starts up again. <laughs> and I'm like, yes, go on. <laughs> um, yeah, but I, I, I mean, I think when Dolly Parton saw how that came out in the movie, she must have been over the moon, honestly, because I... I think he smashed it out the park, but um, Chris, you didn't mention "I Will Always Love You." That's got to be that's got to be up there on the the memorable songs. 
Eh. I hum it for me. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't like her first number of um, little bit of pissing country place. Nothing like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No. Yeah. That that one was good. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Now that I think about it, it's coming back to me. <laughs> I mean, I think um, it is just it's one of those underrated musicals um, that I think a lot of people should watch because it's just really fun to watch and you can kind of turn your head off and find a lot of humour in all the wild characters that are featured. I mean, we didn't even mention Dom DeLuise as the kind of um, TV figure trying to take down this whorehouse and how kind of over the top he goes with it. Yeah, I was actually wondering where his nomination was. If they're going to nominate anybody from the film, you know, why not him? Because uh, he's he's delightful and so slimy. Uh, I, I I love I like Dom DeLuise a lot. I think he's a very talented comic actor, and uh, have him to have him be Oscar nominated would have made me very happy. Yeah, he was fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, so next we've got John Lithgow in The World According to Garp, um, which is interesting. <laughs> um, so this was adapted <laughs> from the novel by John Irving, um, who never met his father. And apparently he told his mother that if she wasn't going to tell him anything about his father, he was going to invent the circumstances of his conception. And the result was this book, Um which is a little eccentric. Yeah, that's a nice way to put it. Did anyone else get Forrest Gump vibes from this? Hard not to, right? Yeah, you definitely get the kind of schmaltzy energy um, of a Forrest Gump in this. And it's really, it's essentially about the journey, isn't it? That Garp goes through rather than him as a character it's it's all about the things that are happening to him um and it just kind of lurches from one major plot point to the next um and i i kind of felt that it it nothing felt consequential in the movie you know like even when the kid dies mm-hmm. it's kind of like well did that really happen because they just move on nobody seems all that bothered um they just say, you know, let's have another kid. So overall, the approach to drama in the film seemed to be really like arbitrary and throwaway um, that I struggled to invest in it, really. Yeah, I mean, I've, I felt the same way. I found myself kind of drifting a bit and even in the events that were supposed to be dramatic and world shattering didn't really land as such. And yeah, the the death of their son in particular was... I didn't even realize that he died until like five or six minutes later because it just like freeze frames on him and fades away. And then they're talking about the other son losing an eye and I couldn't remember which son that was. Um, And yeah, it didn't even occur to me that her other son was... their other son was dead until later than it should have. So... Maybe that's on me, but I I don't think it's entirely on me. Uh, yeah, this was definitely the film of the bunch that I was not looking forward to revisiting. Um, both because of, I guess, thinking about Lithgow's casting 
in a modern sense, but also just how much I didn't enjoy the film when I had watched it years ago. And even this time, I you, you are mentioning plot points and I am having to find myself be like, oh, that did happen. I just... <laughs> <laughs> I just don't have much memory of this film, even with the second viewing earlier this week. It's just, it's just one of those films that is trying to go for a lot, but in the end, I'm just kind of left with nothing. Well, what on earth was going on with the political feminist stuff? You know that they've got this like thinly veiled reference to um to Alice Paul and the. The, the Woman's Party movement, which I think was going on um, when this book was written. But the that strand to it, again, felt really awkward and done for effect. And um, I just feel like the, the film is sort of deliberately odd to the extent where it's like oddity instead of ingenuity. It's like almost as a replacement. It's how much weird shit can we get into this film and get away yeah. with it? So... I mean, I did think there were a couple of good performances, um, one of which we're going to talk about later. Um, but I I would question Robin Williams being cast in this, given his age. He probably isn't young enough. No, definitely not. Uh, even in his first appearance as Garp, how old was he supposed to be? So like college age, and he looks way too old. Mm-hmm. And I think what else doesn't help to his casting is how not out of their way they go to not even try age up Glenn Close. It just feels like all they do to try age her up is give her grayer hair. But I don't, I don't believably see them as mother and and son. (laughs) And, And if you were to tell me that Glenn Close played Robin Williams' mother at some stage in her career, I'd have to be like, when? Yet this film exists, I guess. Four years older she is mm-hmm. than him. <laughs> um, but it is, I like, to be positive, I do think Glenn Close's performance is really good, especially for a debut movie. Because um, I wasn't that impressed first time around, but this time I saw a lot more. Because um, she did, she was nominated... In most years in the 80s after this, right? Because this was the big break. Um, yeah, this is her first of three straight supporting nominations. Yeah, and then also one in 87, one in 88. So the Academy couldn't get enough of her. Well, apparently they could because she's always a bridesmaid. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'd have to agree. I, I kind of... In my first viewing, wasn't that impressed by Close, but this time, I think she was really. I think she was really good, and she sold a lot of the moments that I think were any actor to play those moments. They wouldn't have, I guess, worked as well. Even though I did say I didn't find much in this movie, I have to at least admit that I found her work uh, quite enjoyable. Yeah, I think it's because she's just, she's sort of alone to herself, isn't she? Like the first scene um, where she's explaining to her parents about the baby is just, that is funny. It does start well. Um, But 
Yeah, I kind of, I thought she was a free spirit throughout and she gave the character as much as she could. Um, but I guess we're not here to talk about her, we're here to talk about Lithgow. So what did everyone think of, of Lithgow's performance? I mean, I don't really know what to say. I Yeah, I thought the long silence probably sums it up best. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, taking out of account is kind of, the casting of him aside, I just, I thought he was fine. I didn't really see anything substantial enough to warrant this nomination. And I, I enjoy Lithgow as an actor in many things, but I think between this and his nomination the following year, I question why this was the moment in his career where they decided to focus in on him Mm-hmm. Yeah, this this was the kind of baffling nomination amongst the five. Um, I, I hadn't seen the movie before watching it for the episode, and at the end of and at the end of it, I just wasn't. It's the only one where I honestly had no idea why he was nominated. I, I agree with Owen. I, I think I like John Lithgow as an actor, and I think he's done good work. I just don't think this is it. And especially since the character doesn't, I mean, even though he has a fair amount of screen time in the movie, um, Lithgow doesn't really make much of an impact, I think. Like, even less than Charles Durning. Yeah, I would say way less than Charles Durning. But, like, he's Mm. not doing an awful lot. Um, He's kind of, he's funny when required. You know, he's maybe convincing as a newly out and proud woman. Um, And he's got to react to Jenny's death, which is fine. Um, But there isn't much of a depth of feeling. Um, But having said that, I do think Roberta as a character is refreshing in a way, because I do think this is, even though it, it, this is a trans woman in a, um, film that is constantly trying to create weirdness um, and that could be seen as offensive in a way I did like that Roberta and Garp have this non-sexual relationship and Garp kisses her on the lips as a friend and that's not made a big deal at all so I do think the film should be championed for that um, but the performance itself mm-hmm. I didn't think was um, worth a nomination I agree I mean, I would say the nomination probably came about because of the role he was playing and how obviously there's been examples of since of cisgendered actors playing trans roles and receiving nominations. But at least once post this, I can kind of understand because they are giving elements of performance that appeal to me besides their playing of a trans character as opposed to Lithgow who the only thing I can see is people seeing as being this great acting feat as him playing a role not of his own gender identity yeah I mean I'm not I'm not entirely convinced that people saw this as progressive at the time either like there's even when they present the Oscar to Lewis Gossett Jr there's like a joke Oh, um, gosh. that the 
this category as like a drag race. Yeah. Um, that that Susan Sarandon says this joke and it's like, oh, that's probably not great. The, the best thing to say. Um, kind of went over like a lead balloon too. So <laughs> at the time, <laughs> like, really? Yeah. That's that's the joke you're going for here? Mm-hmm. Well, that's Susan Sarandon for you. Um, she... She very much thrives on um, saying things and doesn't care what anyone else thinks. Mm-hmm. But I mean, that was a reference to you've got um, Robert Preston um, dresses up as a woman, which we're going to talk about later. Um, but also Judy Judy Andrews um, and Dustin Hoffman in Tootsie uh, pretend to be a woman. So. Um, Interesting gender-related nominations uh, in '82. Um, the greatest part of the movie for me was when that doofus student that his wife is sleeping with gets uh, his dick bitten off in the car accident. <laughs> it's so deserved. That character was such a oh, he's so annoying, and I hated him in every moment. And when Lithgow was mentioning it and describing it in you know very funny offhand detail uh that was great that was wonderful great moment but could that happen i'd rather not find out because i have a feeling even the (laughs) even the research would upset me um but i mean it happens in other movies not in the same circumstance but like last house on the left also has a uh you know an emasculation by by biting so it i have to assume it's possible Mm -hmm. i mean in the world according to garp it is possible right (laughs) anything's possible (laughs) yeah okay so next we've got james mason in the verdict um this is the only nominee in this category uh from a best picture nominated film um and this is Sidney Lumet directing. Um, and we've done a few Sidney Lumet films. You know, you, you we don't quite realise how many of his films were embraced by the Academy. Um, but what did everyone think of The Verdict? I remember watching it many years ago and loving it. Um, and I still love aspects of it. Um, the acting in particular, but rewatching it now, um, realizing that uh, Paul Newman is not, you know, Frank Galvin is just not as good a lawyer as the film seems to think that he is. And the entire trial sequence, I mean, we, we can get to it in due course, but just aggravatingly ridiculous. Um, so overall, I would say it dropped a few notches for me upon rewatching. Yeah, I mean, I I still really uh, love this film. Um, I I hadn't watched it in a long time, and I think it's just a great example of why Sully Lumet is considered one of the better the better directors to have ever made films. I think while. Um, the Paul Newman character isn't a great lawyer. I think there, that's I find that interesting for me as an audience member to question 
my thoughts on him in his career while also kind of having going against the movie's projection of him being and I think it's one of the better um films that deal with the law and I think there's a reason why so many people still consider it a great film decades later yeah I think I mean I mostly probably appreciated it how it represented alcoholism um to me like I appreciated that we didn't see scene after scene of Frank you know falling over things and slumped over the bar etc I thought it was done very tastefully um and and the film made its point about that very concisely without us needing too much information um but is frank a, a bad lawyer or is frank's judgment just going because of the alcohol that's kind of for me what was really interesting about the movie um he makes so many mistakes and it's quite difficult to watch a a film where the leading character is so hopeless for most of it. Um, But I mean, with Paul Newman in this role, I think he's just incredible. Yeah. I I do think Paul Newman is incredible in it. Um, And another thing I like about the movie is we don't get kind of that stereotypical uh, alcoholism story scene where he, you know, gets sober and cleans his act up. He never really does. Like, he stays a hard drinker. Like, he doesn't drink as much, you know, towards the end of the film, but he's still, like, drinking a beer in the morning before he flies to New York to see the ex-nurse. He's still drinking quite heavily. Um, so, yeah, I would have to say the alcohol doesn't um, do great things for his legal expertise. And we definitely do get flashes and hints that he used to be much sharper. Uh, so that also adds, I think, to the uh, to the tragedy of the whole thing. But we get that a lot through, you know, Newman's great performance. And as Owen was mentioning, Sidney Lumet's uh, great direction brings that out in a really, a really uh, mesmerizing way. Yeah, I mean, Newman's, I just think there are a lot of like, um, small details in the performance like that he's Frank's maybe struggling to function you know there's quite some long pauses in the um, his speech to the jury like maybe he's got brain fog or something and mm-hmm. what sometimes when he's having conversations with people he doesn't always feel that present in the room um, and they have made Newman as well look awful in this like I've never seen him look worse um, but all that collectively, I think, really worked for the performance. Yeah, I think watching a movie like this, you kind of can't question why Newman is considered one of the greatest actors. I mean, as you like, even if it's not his typical um, matinee idol phase of his career, I think him playing for lack of a better word, a de- more more de glam role. He's just a very talented actor and he plays every aspect of this character extremely well. And you just feel like you're, you feel confident that you're going to be leaded through this film because he's playing uh, the role of Frank. Um, Chris, do you want to have a, because Chris used to work in a legal office. (laughs) 
Do we do we want to get into the trial to all of all of the things that goes wrong? Um, well, because there's a long list, right? I can rattle some <laughs> off, um, but okay, just even before we get to trial, right away, he could have been disbarred right from the get go because the diocese makes him a settlement offer, which he rejects without communicating it to his client. Right there, that's a disbarment offense. Um, at the very least, a disciplinary action and probably would have gotten uh, kicked off the case. Um, he needs a continuance when, you know, his, his uh, witness disappears. And he just goes to the judge's house in the middle of the night and asks for it. Man... That's that's not the corrupt judge, all right? That's just you forgetting that you have to file a motion for a continuance. You don't just go to the judge and ask him for one and he says yes or no. You know, it, it whatever. <laughs> and, okay, he's not the only one, though, of course. You know, on the other side, you've got Concanon uh, um, and his whole team, like, literally rehearsing down to the exact wording the witnesses answers and i think that is i mean you're definitely allowed to prep your witness but you're not allowed i think to um feed them lines like that and that's definitely out of bounds um but he could have gotten uh so many mistrials paul newman could have gotten so many mistrials throughout this thing um, he threatens to go to the uh, ethics committee and rat out this judge for his obvious bias. And why doesn't he do that? You know? Yeah. It, that would be the quickest way to get a fair trial. Um, the judge's questioning of his expert witness is completely out of line. There's no way that judge could have defended that to a disciplinary panel. Um, you guys can cut me off whenever, or Callum, you can edit out this whatever because i'm only halfway through the list um i had a list too so you you said you're not alone (laughs) (laughs) okay um what about the jury the the worst part oh the i mean he's awful uh with selecting the jury yeah um i think we can put that down to alcoholism and being out of practice i meant the verdict oh finding them not guilty yeah that's ridiculous uh that's uh Hollywood ending for you there, um, which was not in the original draft, right? David Mamet wanted to end it without ever finding out what the verdict was, and they kind of pressured him into writing the ending where we find out. Yeah, because they said, I mean, we can't have a film called The Verdict and then not give the verdict. I, I think that would be brilliant, but whatever. But when I did um, Jury Duty, I never got a verdict as a juror. Because it was a mistrial. So. Mm. Good lawyer, then. (laughs) Well, honestly, uh, James Mason should have moved for a mistrial uh, after the evidence of the ex-nurse was deemed inadmissible. And the judge says, just forget it. Well, no, they can't just forget it. That's called uh, unringing the bell and you can't do it. So. James Mason should have immediately moved for a mistrial once that evidence was deemed inadmissible because the jury won't forget that. They can't. Obviously, they can't. So that's on him. Big mistake. Um, 
Yeah, Paul Newman just drops the ball continuously. He asks the question about um, the two minutes of brain inactivity leading or heart inactivity leading to brain damage. And he asks why. And the doctor says, because she was anemic. It's right there in the chart. And like, yep, that's just basic research, you know, do the legwork, find that out. And don't, yeah, like Jack Warner says right after that, don't ask a question you don't know the answer to. That's the first thing they teach you in law school. Um, yeah, but but some of these mistakes speak to his character and his judgment yes. failing him. But I, I agree some of the other things um, legally did take me out of the film because I thought, no, that wouldn't happen. So I just said, just have one more. Um, <laughs> when... Um, when James Mason objects to first the Xerox copy as evidence, and then after that gets thrown out, he objects to um, the nurse's entire testimony, Paul Newman just sits there, and he doesn't say a word until after the judge says, yes, sustained, and he, uh, he objects. Okay, first of all, you can't object to the judge's ruling. That's not what objections are. And also, once James Mason explained why he thought the evidence and the witness should be dismissed, Paul Newman, then that's his turn to get up and say why they should be admissible and why they should stand. And he just sits there. So the judge, of course, even if he wasn't corrupt, would rule in favor of the lawyer that gave the reason for the objection. And if the other attorney doesn't give any answer to it, what's he... What's he supposed to do? Um, I mean, well, <laughs> I, <laughs> I mean, I don't uh, have a list of um, faults with how this um, job works. I don't have any experience in it. So I think my take is that um, <laughs> it was just very um, interesting and to watch. And even though dramatically wise it was going for the unrealistic when it comes to how um this occupation works i think at least for me dramatically it was very effective and i guess with you mentioning things about how kind of impossible a lot of these moves made by characters in this movie went i can understand um a slightly negative more negative reaction to this film. Yeah. But I I think that um, I do agree that all of these are mistakes that a bad or alcoholic lawyer might actually make. So um, it does speak to the presentation of Newman's character and how far he's fallen that all of these things are in the film. So the more I think about it, the less I think they're actually false in the film, just more like, you know, things that when you know trial procedure just annoys you that the lawyer's getting this basic shit wrong. The jury, the jury finding them not uh, guilty is, um, is definitely a fault of the film. Because if you're told by the judge to disregard something, you should be disregarding it, you know. Um, yeah. But, um, I mean... It's it kind of a Hollywood ending, but it kind of isn't. Like, because it's very muted. Um, it's kind of anticlimactic in a way. 
and um, and non-celebratory, despite the decision being in Frank's favour. Uh, and I yeah. kind of like that there's no real payoff at the end, and that the movie's saying, you know, that things are not all right for Frank. You know, that the profession isn't in great shape, the judge is biased, Frank isn't coping, Laura's off the wagon, there's a woman lying in a coma somewhere. Um, so it's not <laughs> it's not the most uplifting of films, um, but I appreciated the realism of the ending, you know, and the impact of the case on everyone involved. Um, and I also want to shout out Lindsay Krause. Um, I, I think she kills the scene on the stand. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah she very much rivals... Um other one scene wonders of actresses on the stand. I think she very much is in line with saying Uno Connor and witness for the prosecution. Yeah. In terms of kind of just coming in on the stand and just taking all of the attention. Yeah. I think um, a lesser movie and would have definitely made the verdict of finding them guilty and, be some way to cure Frank of his alcoholism. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think the film being that bit more realistic is better for it and leaving these characters in a very unknowing situation. Yeah, agreed. So what about James Mason? Yeah, he's James Mason. <laughs> I think he's he's just fabulous. Um, he He... Yeah, <laughs> I mean, he very much obviously is known for playing character. He was very, he's very much known for playing characters like this, that kind of suave and unsuspecting um, person in his movies from the forties. But he just brings it to such a different degree in this, where he's still that kind of calm, cool and collected person, but he still can be quite villainous and but very simply villainous where you don't fully expect it because he's being so quiet about everything and i think that you, the film isn't the the film is better for having his energy opposite newman and i'm very much thankful that and um, he was included in the movie and i think it's a really great late stage career performance from mason Agreed. And I mean, he's he's not even really a villain in this. I mean, yes, he's defending the bad guys, but and yes, some of his tactics are, are questionable, but he's definitely the antagonist, but he's not like a full-on villain, which I, you know, he, he's very good at playing those kind of roles that are, you know, in the hands of a lesser actor would kind of be approached as kind of a villainy um, part. But he just comes across as a guy who knows he knows all the ins and outs. He knows how to approach things. He's got all the resources behind him. And, yeah, suave as hell and um, has just become used to winning. And uh, he just, yeah, exudes that in every moment he's on screen. It's wonderful. Yeah, they've clearly brought him in to be, you know, sort of as the, the beacon of respectability, you know. Um and he, he is very credible as a lawyer. Like, I like the scenes of him outlining his strategy at the beginning with with all the people. I don't know if some of them are students, or, but that's how it feels in a way. Um, and I think his cross-examination of Caitlin, 
shows the ruthless streak to the character. Um, I think he, I mean, he's the only villain the film could have, mm-hmm. apart from maybe alcohol. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> like he is paying um, Laura to give him information, which is again disbarable uh, offence. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I have to say I wanted more of him. Like I feel like he's got 25 minutes of screen time and a lot of that is in the background of Newman. You know, I um, it just doesn't... To me, I wanted more of him in, in the film. So I think what he's doing is good, but um, I think there could have been more to showcase that character separately from the trial, um, which might have made... might have given us a bit more information about Concanon. But I thought he was good. I've never seen James Mason be bad in anything. So I guess I have to agree. I trying to think. Um, no, he's never kind of really been bad in anything. Um, I I can kind of see what you mean in wanting more of him. I mean, I will never say no to having more Mason in movies. Um, he's one of those actors for me that is just always so wonderful to watch. Um, I think maybe if we did learn a bit more about his character, it could have, it would have, um, I guess just given us the excuse to watch Mason more. Um, I don't really have any negatives to say about him. Um, I mean, I think we, we have to talk about Charlotte Rampling. Um, I don't think we can, I, I think she was just as great as any other actor in this movie. And it's just another reason to for me to love her as an actress and wonder why it took so long for many audience members to finally give her her just desserts in a mainstream way. She's just always been a very reliable actress. And this is just, while not a very word-heavy um, role, it's a lot about her presence. I think she's just incredible and really rises to the challenge of acting opposite such legends as Paul Newman and James Mason. Yeah. I, um, when we talked about 1966, I mentioned that I, I thought it was a shame that Charlotte Rampling hadn't been nominated for Georgie girl, uh, for supporting actress because I thought she was so good in that. And this is another instance where again, it's like, what is the Academy? Uh, you know, what are they waiting for? I mean, they waited another, uh, 30 years to finally nominate her and there were so many other roles like this one that they could have considered yeah I think she probably needed more lines um, and maybe a little bit more agency and perspective in the film um, it could be that Lindsay Krause might have taken votes away from her with, within that because um, she maybe gets the more baity scene well she definitely does um, but yeah that's true I mean, at least now we've got Rampling is an Oscar nominee. Isabel Huppert, again, is another one like this, who's now an Oscar nominee. So hopefully these these European legends will eventually get their due. There's some more of them anyway. Yeah. I mean, you mentioning Georgie Girl. Um, it's interesting that you could almost view that film and this film as a double bill, as it has both uh, James Mason and Charlotte Rampling in it. Yeah, and and Mason was nominated for that uh, too. 
Uh, okay, so next we've got Robert Preston in Victor Victoria, uh, which was a huge hit for Blake Edwards. Um, and Vincent Canby, uh, the New York Times critic, wrote so effusively in his review about it. He said, everyone, go out and see this movie immediately, um, which they did. Um, was he right? I think so. I, I really like this movie a lot. Um, I like all Blake Edwards. Um and he's, you know, obviously he's best known for the Pink Panther films, but I think he he's done some really great work outside of that. And this is one of the like late career. Uh, uh, I, I don't maybe I call it a masterpiece because there are aspects of it that haven't uh, aged quite as well, but definitely a, a highlight, a highlight of his '80s output. Um, yeah, I really like it a lot. Yeah, I I too love uh, this movie. I've seen it so many times and every time I just really enjoy it and I guess using a term like masterpiece is always a big thing because not every movie is a masterpiece but I think this I mean obviously age-wise maybe things don't stand up as well but you can say that about any movie that you would call a masterpiece you could probably say it's a masterpiece of its time um, I think it's just really fun and really wild and I think anyone could sit down and watch it and enjoy it unless they hate musicals and then if not, if they do, I guess don't watch. <laughs> <laughs> even if even if you hated musicals, you can just, I mean, the, the numbers are not many, certainly not stuffed in at the rate of, uh, you know, musicals where they just break into song and dance in the street um all of the all of the songs are nightclub tracks so they're all you know real world situations at least yeah i'm not sure about masterpiece but i think like leslie ann warren is definitely giving a master class in this uh in comic line readings uh, i have to say i thought she was just a joy from start to finish um and I think she even improvised the lock the door line, she says to Victor when he, he's undressing, <laughs> um, which is just classic. Um, so, yeah, and the, the acting in general is really good. Um, I kind of, I like that this is a comeback vehicle for, for Judy Andrews. Um, it gives her a lot to do as well that we haven't seen from her, like in her early career. Um there's a lot of sort of physical comedy. Um, and I think there's even dramatically quite a big internal dilemma for Victoria, you know. So I'm pleased that she got a nomination away from her sort of musical phase in the 60s. Because this, this is definitely, apart from obviously her amazing octaves, this is showcasing something a bit different than those films did. Yeah, it's definitely not playing a singing nanny as um, she did in her films of the 60s. Yeah, and it's it's way more um, risky as well, especially with the, the queerness uh, and the sexuality elements. Yeah, I, I, I'm really happy to hear that you um, enjoyed Leslie Ann Warren in this. I think it's one of those kind of iconic, blonde, dim, yet... You can see the intelligence in the actor and playing the role. Um, it's very much for me in line with something like a 
Jean Hagen in Singing in the Rain where she may be playing dumb, but you know the actress is not and is making very intelligent choices in how she chooses to play it. I mean, her first scene alone where she's wordless and giving such a scowled face and then being able to turn on the dime of a hat when she, I guess, well, realizes that Vic- Victoria is Victor. And just the way she screams yay is just, there's a reason why it's a very popular um, generated image all over Twitter. Because it's very expressive and just a great note in her performance. Yeah, she steals so many scenes. Like even when she's leaving on the train and she just <laughs> throws up her, her dress, you know. It's like there's so many <laughs> moments. It kind of like you see... Uh, Amanda Seyfried got nominated um, for Mank for sort of this, you know, bombshell role, which was kind of dull. Um, and you see how somebody of that era, um, a character of that era, can be played with so much more charisma. I mean, it's not exactly comparable, but it is sort of, you know, this kind of um, comedic glamour But I, th- I think... Warren just knocks it out the park. I think based on this, I probably would have given her the Oscar. I I too would have done so very easily, even with some stiff competition in the line of a Terry Gar. And it was nice to see James Garner. Um, and I think there was, for me, there was something really interesting about King's um, King's attraction to to Victoria, and you know, although. The, the fact that King professes to know that she's a woman from the beginning. Garner sort of, I think, really does well in that bathroom disrobing scene um, where he's genuine, genuinely not sure whether she's a man or a woman in that moment. Um, and he, you know, he does end up having this sly smile when he's proved to be right. But up to that point, it's sort of, interesting that he's can't help himself from watching um and he's also not completely comfortable with the fact that he can't help himself um so i think it was it was really um disarmingly complex about about sexuality in that moment um and the way that king approached his relationship with victor victoria yeah, it's definitely not a role I would ever imagine James Garner in. I mean, he isn't he's an actor in a lot of things. He kind of has no defining trait for me other than I guess being known as James Garner, but it's it's nice seeing him have a lot of fun in this and being afforded the opportunity to play a bit more light. Yeah, and don't uh, on a craft level also, I, th- I think it earned all of its nominations. Um, the costume design and uh, production design are really on point. Um, I really like how it embraces the, the tacky, tawdry elements of the era um, and sort of turns it into this farcical um, sort of um, chamber chamber comedy. Um because Blake Edwards did get a little bit more daring and outrageous with his later work and um, obviously the Pink Panther out-and-out slapstick farce. Um, but the comedy here 
is sometimes silly, but it, it can be very clever. And um, I think pretty much everything lands. And there's definitely still, though, a, a good fair amount of that kind of Pink Panther slapstick, um, like the stool that breaks under the private detective and all of the all of the physical um, punishment that he takes. Um, I love the, you know, and the the cabinet shuts on his finger and the camera just stays there as <laughs> as everybody leaves the room and then he just moans and slowly brings his finger inside. That's pure Pink Panther and pure Edwards and it's so funny. Yeah, I mean, the humor he injects into even the like final reprise of the Shady Dames from Seville when Preston is playing and the role of Victor Victor Victoria is just really fun to watch. And while earlier you're just like marveled by um, Andrews and her vocal ability, you can still watch. It's great to watch the same number delivered by a different performer in such a different way and still find just as much enjoyment in it. And he did that in one take, apparently. Um, shall we talk about Robert Preston then? Um, we talked about Charles Durning earlier um, with very little screen time. Preston does get quite a bit of screen time in this. Yeah, almost to the point where I wonder if this is the wrong category for him. I mean, he he's definitely not the main character, but he is a main character, and we, op- we even open the film with him. Um I, I saw him more as the lead actor, even though James Garner has eventually comes in and has the romantic relationship with uh, with Victoria. Toddy kind of seemed like a lead to me. Yeah, I mean, I could understand thinking that. I um, don't necessarily think that mainly because of how much the film is about um, focuses a lot on Andrew's character. Um, but I I don't I don't I'm glad he has a lot of screen time because he's just been really great in it and I would feel the film would be lesser without his presence. Definitely. Yeah, it's I mean it, I definitely think James Garner's lead. So it's but it, it might be a three lead situation. Um but I certainly don't think it's terribly egregious. Um No. But it's 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 interesting that Peter Sellers was originally intended to play the the role of Toddy. Obviously, he and Blake Edwards were, were great friends and, and um, colleagues. Uh, but, but Sellers died the year before this was filmed. Um, but I think, I mean, Robert Preston embraces Toddy like so completely. It is difficult to imagine anybody doing a better job. Honestly, I thought he was excellent. Um and Pauline Kale said in a review that he brings an unholy glee to the role, which I thought was very well put. You know, he's he seems to revel in all of these parlor games, um, and he and Andrews bounce off each other very well, and none of it feels forced at all. Yeah, I just can't. I can't imagine a Peter Sellers in this role. I mean, I can't even imagine what his interpretation would be mainly because Sellers on most occasions was completely different every time out. And I think being familiar with Preston and a lot of his previous musical experience, I mean, he is the music man 
um, very much known for that. And I think <laughs> he brings a lot of that history he has in musical theatre to this role and can just deliver such a smooth and controlled performance. I mean, from minute one, you completely understand this character and you're just, at least me, I was just having so much fun living for his physicality, his choice line readings and just his general good humor throughout. Yeah, I agree. And um, like Peter Sellers was a genius and I would be interested in him in this role if Robert Preston didn't play it because, you know, um, I don't think anybody could have done better than Robert Preston. And I think it's good for the film that it's Robert Preston uh, in the role because, as you say, he just completely embraces it, completely lives it so fully. Um, Yeah, he's just brilliant and he gives such a gleeful energy to the whole thing. Like you're saying, he just enjoys everything that's happening, even the uh, even when things go wrong, he seems to enjoy it. So it's all good. Especially when things go wrong. Like he's mm. properly naughty, you know? Like he just sits back and <laughs> watches the chaos unfold. Yep. But um, it's, it's nice that he finally got a nomination because most of his films were in, in the early days of, you know, film noir um, but, you know, he kind of became known for his work later on in The Music Man and in this. Yeah, I mean, this is definitely, I definitely would have wanted to see more nominations for Preston in his career, but I'm happy that he at least received this one because he's a performer who, while in a lot of early 30s and 40s movies, the peak for me with him definitely comes later in his career when he's say in a role like this where I believe him so much as playing a gay man that when I found out that he wasn't um, I was quite shocked because he just gives off a very familiar energy and I so I guess that's an effective part of his performance is that he believably played this queer role and do you think any of the musical numbers would have made great um, original song choices this year. Um, I mean, I wasn't blown away by the music, honestly. Um, yeah. I thought it fitted the period um, and it fitted what they were going for, but I don't think any of the songs stood out to me very much. Although it, it would have been fun if they'd nominated one and so we could have got Robert Preston and uh, Julie Andrews performing at the Oscars. That would have been fun. Okay, um, so the nominees we've discussed so far, uh, they all lost to uh, Lewis Gossett Jr. in An Officer and a Gentleman. Um, and he was only the third black actor to win an Oscar after Hattie McDaniel and Sidney Poitier. Um, and the first ever in this category. Uh, what did we think of An Officer and a Gentleman? Big, huge box office hit this year. Um, I can't, I enjoyed moments of it. I definitely understand why it was a hit at the time, but I can't say I terribly loved a lot of it. Yeah, that that's kind of where I landed on it as well. Um, a few individual moments, a few individual scenes, and um 
things like that, but the whole thing never really grabbed my interest. It's kind of like Garp. Um, I think I kind of understood where it was going very early on, um, and it uh, never really surprised me, I guess. At least Garp threw in a few surprises uh, that I genuinely didn't see coming. This one uh, kind of is pretty by the book, it seemed to me. Yeah, it had some really disappointing moments, and I have to say I thought it was quite bad on the whole. Mm-hmm. Um, I think one thing that doesn't help is that, I, you know, as a character, Zach, he's a bit of a bounder, um, but, you know, the attempts to redeem his character in the second half, to me, feel constantly undone. Um you know, he's one from one minute he's helping Sega to scale the wall, which is obviously really nice and unselfish. And then in the next scene, he's telling, you know, he's having a go at Sid for trying to be a good guy about the baby. Um, and I don't know, I just kept thinking that the character um, hasn't really taken on board that much throughout the film. He doesn't seem to change much. And it's difficult to then get on board uh, with a romance involving a guy that seems like a bit of an asshole, to be honest. Yeah. Yeah, and and that also develops kind of um, unevenly as well. Like you say, he seems to have these moments of growth, but then in the next scene he's telling Paula, you know, I don't want anybody, you know, I'm in it for me, I don't want to, I don't want love, I don't want blah, blah, blah. But you know, like the scene before that, it's like, well, wait, no, you're, you do, you know, we just saw that, but now you don't, and then you do again, and then you don't, yeah, it was very uh, inconsistently written and inconsistently just portrayed, which kind of made it hard to, hard to take hold of anything in this character. Yeah, I mean, I think Gear himself doesn't really add much to making this role a bit more um digestible i mean gear would go on for me to be so much better later on in his career but seeing him at this stage i i would have rather someone else in the role because i think they maybe could have delivered more of those questionable character Mm -hmm. beats a bit better yeah he certainly doesn't help the arc at all um but, I mean, it's interesting that Richard Gere and Deborah Winger didn't get along during filming um, and wouldn't associate with each other when the camera wasn't rolling. I think she called him a brick wall. Um, <laughs> although, to be honest, that seems like quite a pattern. She didn't get on with Shirley MacLaine either uh, the year after this. Um, but I think there is also problems with her character, like... I find it really odd that there's very little of her and then, you know, the first half's all about him and then it's sort of like halfway through, you know, whoever was writing the script realised it needed to flesh her out a bit and then we get like a 15 to 20 minute period where we finally get scenes of her in the factory at the family home and to me it felt really uneven and kind of like an afterthought, you know, why... We've spent like an hour with this guy and then now you're moving. It's all about her now. And I just thought it 
it just felt very uneven. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I mean, Winger is a very interesting actress to talk about. I mean, there's so much with her career and with her post kind of peak career of the 80s to talk about. And I think she's good in this, but a nomination I just... uh, not I'm not fully in support of at least in comparison to what she would do the next year and say something like a terms of endearment yeah she's much better the following year what's also disappointing to me is is the um the role of Lynette in the uh the drama particularly in the last half an hour um certainly from a writing perspective is uh feels really cheap and manipulative and quite mean-spirited um, in terms of its presentation of women. I, I just think there's not really much to talk about in terms of anyone besides, I guess, Louis Acosta Jr. in this movie for me. I think all of them are not given much support in terms of the script and there's just a lot of questionable moments to this movie and looking at it more so with a modern lens than say at the time where I guess it's understandable why people would enjoy this movie because of how unrealistic the romance feels and how there's the very forced happy ending and the very popular theme song as well (laughs) So what about um, Lewis Gossett Jr.'s performance then? Owen, you kind of suggested that um, you liked it more than you liked the film. Yeah, I think he... I mean, Gossett Jr. is, again, another great um, actor. And it's always good going back to movies like this and discovering great actors at their most um, known parts and I think while their father script doesn't really give his character much to play with in terms of variety I think Junior manages to find a bit of variety throughout I mean he's constantly the kind of berating officer in charge of these group of individuals but there are slight moments where he does to me give us um a view of what his character might be like outside of this environment and makes it a bit more of a, makes him a bit more of a human. And I think that's why I like this performance more than you might expect, given how kind of we mostly know him for constantly giving out to the officers in his group. Yeah. And I I agree, and I think maybe that contributed to his, you know, award success because it that's kind of up to him as the actor to give us those moments and give us those uh, hints which aren't really in the script for the most part. And Gossett Jr. really manages to do a lot with pretty limited and one-note scenes that he has uh, where he's always just kind of yeah, the the one who's haranguing them, the one who's pushing them and punishing them, etc. Um, 
he manages to make him more of a fleshed out character than he maybe was on the page. Yeah, it is way more realized than it has any right to be as a character, you know. You can imagine him at home, you can imagine the family life. Um, and I suppose the film's got no need to explore his home life, but Gossett's performance made me want the film to feature the character more, you know, in a different capacity. Um, I think it's really good work because he does, like, fully as a character does seem to reset the tone of the film because the beginning with Zach and his father and the flashbacks, you know, have the film in quite a dark place and then as soon as Foley turns up, the tone gets a little lighter, even if even though he's this strict dr- drill sergeant, um, the tone... Uh, feels much more palatable. Yep. Yeah, I constantly find myself wanting to just follow his story and not care at all for Zach and all of the other officers in the group. He is just the he pulls focus the entire time, and not not in a way where it's a bad thing. I think it's a good thing that he's pulling focus because. Were he not to be there, this film would have been even more unwatchable than parts of it already are. Yeah, I mean, it does feel like the film was was pretty close to a Best Picture nomination, um, given the other nominations and wins, which is pretty crazy to me, honestly, that it was that close. Um, but I like... I have to say I share Owen's lack of enthusiasm overall, you know, the idea that every woman wants to be swept off her feet by a guy in uniform. It's extremely old-fashioned. Um, and its promotion of the military didn't really go into any of the gory details of what it takes to be a soldier, you know. So it did feel very lightweight and dated overall. Yeah, I, I agree with all that. And... Um... Yeah, probably after we finish this recording, I probably won't think about it ever again. It was interesting to hear a couple of lines um, from Foley's opening speech to the recruits or the enlistees um, and a few phrases, a few lines that I recognized from Full Metal Jacket, which of course came out about five years after this. Um, For example, the line, you know, only stares and queers come out of Texas or Oklahoma, I guess, in this one, and it was Texas in Full Metal Jacket. Um, and then I read that uh, Arlie Ermey, who, you know, of course, played the Jill Sergeant in Full Metal Jacket, was the technical advisor on this film uh, and gave Foley that line, Steers and Queers, which he then later said in Full Metal Jacket. So that's a fun, that was a fun mm-hmm. little connection. Yeah, Full Metal Jacket, a much better movie than this is. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yes. I mean, I, I do enjoy the Up Where um, We Belong song. I think it's a good song and it's very representative of songs of the decade and how kind of bombastic they are and how big they feel. And I think it's used well, even if I'm not fully satisfied with 
what the film is giving me as an ending. I think the song is at least a nice thing to listen to. Yeah, it's a bit like Time of My Life from Dirty Dancing. It's that kind of vibe, isn't it? Mm -hmm. It's kind of, you know, cheesy and um, probably old-fashioned for the 80s, but it's still kind of, you can sing along to it. And it's definitely one of those songs that everyone, everyone who hears it knows where it comes from. Okay, so now we come to the immortal question. Why did Lewis Gossett Jr. win this Oscar? And was it close? Owen, what do you think? I mean, I think he won this movie because, as you said, the film was a massive hit of the year. And clearly a lot of people watched it. And whether they enjoyed it or not to the same level as we did, you have to admit that he's a great element of it. And seeing how a lot of people watched it, and found enjoyment in him, I think that's the reason why he won. And obviously the historical precedence is president the historical places win has cannot be forgotten as well and how he's was the first uh, or no, he wasn't the first actor black actor nominating this category, he was the first to win, as you said. And I think maybe that was a reason for his win, but it's definitely a good performance to win and I've for sure seen a lot of worse winners that I can't be too upset at him winning this and in terms of close um actors to possibly winning I think I don't think it was really a close race I think Gossett Jr based on how successful the movie was and how he was such the standout element maybe easily walked away with this win yeah, I agree 100%. Um, as much as I would have, I mean, we'll get to the rankings in a few minutes, so I won't say anything else, but I can't imagine this was that close, considering, as you say, uh, the film's success and him being the standout element of it. Yeah, I agree with you guys. I think, you know, obviously there must have been some sentiment for James Mason, an inner Best Picture nominee, but I think he probably needed a bit more screen time um so and victor victoria although it was popular probably wouldn't be everybody's cup of tea in the academy so yeah i don't think this was close but um gossett jr is still very much around um because it in his oscar speech he mentions that his grandmother lived to 117 so He's 85 now, so if he's got those genes, he's got another 30-odd years left. <laughs> I mean, he was recently in the series Watchmen and was really excellent in that, so I wouldn't say no to having another 30 or so years of Lewis Gossett Jr. around. Uh, snubs. So uh, what do we think was close to a nomination, or who do we think was close to a nomination? Uh, or who would we have nominated from 82? Um, my big snub, I think, this year, would I would have nominated Bill Murray for Tootsie, uh, since they were nominating everybody else from the movie. Um, <laughs> I definitely think Bill Murray has um, been ignored unfairly, and since they were embracing comedy roles uh, this year overall, uh, some some big comedy performances. Um, I think Bill Murray was a snub uh, in this, absolutely. Um, in terms of 
close people to getting nominated. I would want to say one of the Tootsie men was close, but then I'm not sure who would get the most votes because while Bill Murray is great, you also have uh, Charles Durning being great, uh, Sidley Pollock being great, and then there was a fourth one. Um, I can't remember who the actor was. I don't know his name off my head, but I think that maybe was the problem why none of the Tootsie men got in was that they're all just so wonderful and it's very hard to choose which would be best. Are you thinking of George Gaines in Tootsie? The the soap opera guy who's who, you know, goes after Tootsie early in the film. I think so. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I mean there's a lot of great choices for acting there and that maybe that's why they couldn't just decide on one which is why none got the nomination and in terms of men who i would have loved to see here i think the three at least that i would love to see would have been it probably never would have happened uh, rooker Hauer and blade runner um or a kevin klein and sophie's choice who I still think is just as great as Meryl Streep is in that movie. And then the kind of third choice for me, again, a person who never had a donkey's chance at this would be Sean Penn in Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Um, <laughs> that's definitely a performance that's t- stood the test of time. Um, but I would have loved it, as you say, while they're embracing com- comedic performances, see something like that happen. I mean, I, I would have said Rutger Hauer as well. I think he definitely should have been nominated um, if I had a vote. But um, in terms of who was close, David Keith um, got a Globe nomination from op- an officer and a gentleman um, who played Sid. Mm. Uh, although there might be a reason for that. Uh, we didn't even mention that in the movie. <laughs> what happens to that character? <laughs> um, and maybe Mickey Rourke, who won the... Um, National Society of Film Critics for Diner, which I think got a mm-hmm. got a screenplay nomination. Uh, wider observations on 1982. Does anyone want to talk about Gandhi? Uh, anyone in the world? <laughs> I'm good. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm alright. <laughs> I think there's a lot of really good movies this year that no one really talks about anymore. I think stand out amongst them all is kind of shoot the moon um, a movie that no one ever really talks about and I think deserves to be discussed a lot um, it's a movie with Diane Keaton and Albert Finney uh, from this year I want to shout out Come Back to the Five and Dime Jimmy Dean Jimmy Dean from Robert Altman uh, that's a wonderful mm. film um, but I do want to thank you Owen for not picking a a 1982 category that features Gandhi because that was four hours of my life I'll never get back (laughs) (laughs) yeah I'd never do that to myself well for my part I'm I'm thankful you didn't choose a category with E.T. um not a popular thing to say but I hate that movie so much (laughs) hate that oh god oh my word I've never heard anybody say they hate E.T. I hate it. <laughs> um, so Das Boot 
um, set the record for the most nominations for a foreign language film with six. This is another one I've not seen. Is it? Is it the masterpiece that everyone says it is? I think. I think. I, it's, I think so. Yeah, it's my favorite movie of the year. And I guess we have to mention Jessica Lang too, right? Two nominations. I've not seen Francis, uh, so I don't know about that. But I like her in Tootsie. Yeah, she's she's good in Tootsie. I mean, I think many have accused her win for Tootsie of being um, a win also for Francis and how they couldn't really award her that year because you had um, Sophie's Choice that same year. But I think Francis is a good film and contains probably Jessica Lange's greatest uh, performance for me. I would have given it the win for Francis, which I realise is sacrilege um, to Meryl Street fans, but I kind of preferred Meryl in Silkwood the, the year after this. But she's great in Sophie's Choice. Um, no, I'm happy I'm happy that you mentioned Come Back to the Five and Dime, Jimmy Dean, Jimmy Dean. I think that movie, again, is under-discussed. I mean, it's the film debut of Cher, even though she never wants us to believe that she made a movie before Silkwood. Um, and she got a Globe nomination as well, right? Yeah, I think her and Karen Black did, I think. I think that's a, a really good movie and a great example, another great example of why Robert Altman is one of the better ensemble directors to have ever worked. Okay, so we ready to rank these nominees? Yeah. Sure. Yeah, so I'd um from five to one I'd have to go five John Lithgow, four Charles Durning, three Lewis Gossett Jr., two Robert Preston, and then number one for me would have to be James Mason for the verdict. Okay. Nice. Nice. Mine's pretty close. Um I've got number five John Lithgow, number four Charles Durning. I struggled a bit um with that uh but in the end he just didn't yeah i liked his five minutes but it wasn't five minutes substantial enough to get him any higher um number three i've got louis guess louis gassett jr um number two i've got james mason and number one i've got robert preston um because he just makes that movie for me steals every scene and he's just so good in it um and i just really wish robert preston had been an oscar winner uh, mine's not hugely dissimilar. I've mostly gone with my heart here because if I did want to watch one of these performances again, it probably would be Charles Durning's. But um, at five, I've got John Lithgow, uh, four, Charles Durning, three, James Mason, wanted more of him, uh, two, I've got Lewis Gossett Jr. and number one, via fair distance, I think, Robert Preston. Yeah, I mean, I think with those top three, well, I guess with most of this list, besides, I guess, our shared number five of John Lithgow, I don't think you could go wrong with any of the choices. And I think in any year, any of the four would have made really fun and interesting choices here. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, Okay, we have a website. It's categoricallyoscars.com. We're on Twitter at Categorically O. If you would like to leave us a review on iTunes, that would be much appreciated. We recently got a 
a really um, lovely review um, through which uh, Chris and I appreciate. Um, in our next episode, we'll be discussing the 1953 nominees for Best Art Direction Black and White, which were Julius Caesar, Martin Luther, The President's Lady, Roman Holiday and Titanic. Um, thank you, Owen, for coming on the show. No, thank you for having me here. I mean, I I do enjoy coming on podcasts and talking to people about movies, and this is just another great opportunity to talk about films, which I don't really discuss a lot. But it was nice getting to revisit a bunch of these movies. Yeah, I know you you been a few times on uh the 300 passions podcast right yeah yeah z does a great podcast and obviously previous guest of here yeah well thank you so much um all right um we'll be back with a new episode uh next week see you then fellow texans i am proudly Standing here to humbly see, I assure you, and I mean it. Now, who says I don't speak out as plain as day and fellow Texans? I'm for progress and the flag. Long may it fly. I'm a poor boy, come to greatness. So it follows that I cannot tell a lie. What the hell did he say? Same as usual, not a damn thing. Ooh, I love to dance a little sidestep. Now they see me, now they don't have come and gone. And ooh, I love to sweep around a wide step. Cut a little swath and leave.